Welcome to Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by students of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. I'm your host Aniket Narawat, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. Welcome back to Over to Europe. This is episode two, and we are going to talk about a topic that affects us all, even though it might seem like an issue for very few in our society: diversity and inclusion. We have taken some massive technological strides in the last few centuries. This allowed us to move across the world easily. This allowed us to travel more frequently. The world today is smaller than ever before. The awareness we gathered through science has helped us understand our societies and its nuances much better. Never in the history of humanity people lived in such diverse environments. This process certainly has some ch- tangible benefits but we also see some serious challenges about assimilation assimilation of different cultures assimilation of different values and people who look different than us if not paid proper attention these issues have potential to create serious long term damages that is why we wanted to explore the concept of diversity and inclusion instead of getting into one particular kind of issue such as racial diversity or cultural diversity we decided to dig deeper into understanding what diversity itself means what inclusion means is it natural for human beings to be diverse who always have lived in smaller tight knit communities we try to understand what it means to live in diverse society what it means to live in diverse europe in order to understand what diversity means and how humans behave in diverse settings i spoke to professor grace lorden professor lorden is an associate professor of behavioral science at the london school of economics and political science she is also the director of msc program in behavioral science professor lorden also has recently founded the inclusion initiative so let's start with the first very basic question what does uh, diversity mean in the context of europe So I'm going to take what diversity should mean in the context of Europe from the perspective of the firm. Um so all of my work is really thinking about how can we make businesses better? So how can we make them more productive? How can we get more creative outcomes? How can we get more innovative outcomes? And what you really want is to have different voices around the table to get to that to get to that. So that means different life experiences, different genders, different races, different ethnicities, um people who come from different countries of the world, people who have different backgrounds if you read um, in with respect to degrees if you really want to get creative. Um and when i look to measure diversity in the way that i imagine it that you have these discussions with these folk who are coming together a kind of kind of a clash of ideas if you like to bring us to a more creative outcome very often the pulse points for that is to count how many women are in the room so how many people of different races are in the room how many people of different countries are in the room um so it's not a perfect measure of diversity but it really tells me whether or not that group have a problem so i like to say to my students if i want to be more creative if i want to be more innovative it's a really bad idea for me to bring nine more graces into the room to make it 10 so i shouldn't be talking to myself so i should only be doing that if really i just want to pat on my back to be told that my idea is the best idea if i want the most innovative outcome if i want to be challenged if i want to be stretched 
I shouldn't be afraid of being in a room with people who have different ideas to myself. And if I'm the leader of that team, and I've been lucky enough just to hire a team um, at the LSE, and as somebody who is hiring, I really think about each person and are they bringing a unique perspective into the room? Because it's when you get people together and you get them working together, that's when you have the great outcomes. And I think across Europe, firms, whether they're kind of starting out at the SME level or they're large firms, can really benefit from embracing diversity from that perspective rather than thinking about it as something that's socially responsible or a box ticking perspective. It's just good for business. Uh, I want to get to the next question, which is there is a, a parallel term to diversity, which is inclusion. What does inclusion also mean? Like, how is it different from diversity? So let's imagine that I have a team of 10. And when I think about diversity in the way that other people measure it, so just focusing on the pulse points, so just focusing on how many women are in the, are in the room, just focusing on how many people from different countries are in the room and how race is represented. I think of diversity as the picture. So if I take a picture of the room and I show it to you, I can say, this is a diverse team. But that doesn't tell me anything about whether or not those voices are be being heard. So if I'm the leader of that group, I can go in there and I can ignore the other voices that are in the room. So when we think about the outcome that I described in the last section, getting to that place of being creative, getting to that place of being innovative. There is no point in me hiring diverse voices if I'm not going to listen to them. And that's what inclusion is. And inclusion is becoming so important for business that a lot of people are actually reversing DNI. So they're calling it inclusion and diversity to understand that if we don't have inclusion, we can bring diverse voices into the business, but we're not going to get the benefits. Thank you very much. I think both the uh, definitions, the way you defined it was very helpful because these terms are tossed around quite vaguely these days. Uh, I, I understand that your work is more focused on uh, workplaces, but correct me if I'm not wrong. Workplaces are like a smaller scale of society. You have people from diff different places. So I'm going to ask you one question about just in generally how humans behave. So do you think uh, we uh, diversity comes naturally to us? Is it a natural phenomenon? Because uh, if you look at uh, how we have been uh, evolving for uh, thousands of years, we we don't move around much. We have just moved around in the last hundred years, but we are used to certain ideas around us. We are used to questioning these ideas so fast and so quickly. How 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 are we going to uh, react to that? How is this how is this going to work? You know, so, I mean, I, I think if you think about diversity in the way that I described it with these 10 people who have different perspectives, different ideas, kind of this collision of ideas, they're embracing dissent and they're getting to the creative outcome. That doesn't sit naturally with us as human beings. So as human beings, we like to be right and we like to be able to follow lectures, you know, if we're in university in a way that we understand all of the material. Um, and very often, you know, people pull back when they're confronted with ideas that are unfamiliar to them. And I think that really explains why we embracing kind of this idea that diverse, uh, listening to diverse ideas is good for us doesn't actually happen naturally. And I think it's why, you know, if I'm a leader of a group, I really have to remind myself that that person who's in the room who's disagreeing with me, they might be just the person who I need in that particular moment of time. They might be seeing something that I don't see. You know, in behavioral science, we talk a lot about ego. And I think ego plays into our necessity to be around people who we feel comfortable with, who aren't challenging us. And the first thing that will challenge us is when we are faced with people who have had different life experiences to us that we don't understand fully. 
But, you know, as somebody, you know, I'm almost 40 years of age and I can honestly tell you my best learning experiences have come from when I've leaned into people whose life experiences that I didn't identify with, that I didn't fully understand. And I've listened to what they have to say. So I stopped looking out of my own window and kind of broaden my landscape. Um, but it's definitely not something that comes naturally to you in the beginning. Politicians are rallying a certain kind of environment in countries, and that is actually changing a tide against uh, certain uh, like immigration. They're changing tide, uh, uh, tide against people who do not look like you, people who do not behave like you. They're culturally different. What do you think about this? What is the impact of framing of uh, the issue of diversity by uh, politicians? I mean, this is a really good question. So I think really the question is how, you know, how do we change social norms? So we can change social norms in a positive direction, which is what I've been speaking about, but you can also change social norms in a negative direction. And there's kind of two main avenues that you can get there. So the first is true tipping. So that basically means that I get buy-in from one person and then a second and a third, and eventually I have a critical mass and attitudes change, which is really what I'm talking about when I'm saying that we should target the firms, we should target schools, and we should target universities for change. But the second then is this idea of a standing ovation model, right? So you have somebody who's really visible in society, who has a number of followers, and people listen to them. And when they speak, they take action. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing in, in, in society today, this kind of popularist movement, a polarization, you know, kind of on the right and on the left. And you have these figures who stand there and make claims that aren't backed up by data. And you have people who are actually who, who are actually following them. And this is classic social norm change. So, you know, it ends up with a it ends up with polarization and it ends up a populist government. But sadly, it's how we it's how we as humans respond to having these kind of figures who are in front of us saying things that aren't necessarily good for society and aren't necessarily uh, that aren't necessarily true. And, you know, if you take that to the micro level, which I'm always interested in, if you take it to groupthink, it's exactly the predictions of groupthink models. So when we have groupthink in, in firms, in countries, in schools, in universities, people polarize and the median is the best prediction of what the outcome will actually be. So, um, you know, sadly, the models that you that the, the modeling in behavioral science um, does actually explain what we're seeing. It explains why people, you know, we have this kind of polarization about whether or not Britain should stay in, in Europe versus not staying in Europe. It explains why we tend to choose certain types of presidents, but you, you are getting 50% of the population on either side not necessarily understanding each other. Um, I think the saddest part for me comes back to the conversations. So, you know, some of the smartest people that I know will say people who voted um, for the UK to leave Europe are idiots, but they're not un trying to understand their perspective. So some of the smartest people who I know will say people who voted for Donald Trump are idiots or people who voted for Joe Biden are idiots, but they're not trying to understand the other side. And I think if you're somebody who's taking that position and not trying to put yourself in the shoes of other people, you're somebody who shouldn't be in public policy. You shouldn't be creating interventions. You shouldn't be trying to create change. The best interventions that I've managed to make that have made positive change in society, I've put myself in the situation of the person who I think is you know, thinking incorrectly, who I think is um, doing something that's not, not necessarily good because I've done a lot of work in compliance and really try to understand you know, three things from their perspective, the costs, the benefits, and how they're actually discounting, how they're actually discounting time. And in the UK, the, the Brexit vote can really be explained if we look at the costs, 
the benefits and how people actually discount time. And it's more than that. The one thing the social scientists don't study enough is beliefs. Because, of course, when I make a decision, it's not the actual cost, it's not the actual benefits, not actually this kind of how I perceive time that goes into that equation. It's my belief about costs. It's my belief about benefits. It's my belief about time discount or the opportunities that are open to me. So if you really want to be you know, somebody who, who makes change in the world, you need to get under the skin of beliefs. And if you really want to change how often people encounter racism and how much racism hold pe holds people back, you need to get under the skin of the beliefs of the people who are actually doing the action. And then you can change their cost benefit, uh, benefit and, and time discounting equation. My last question would be, I think you advocate for diversity and inclusion. Would you give us a small pitch why people, why firms, why society should be more diverse? I think society should be more diverse because we want to have economies that thrive. So what we want to have are people who are coming together with ideas colliding to get us to a place where we're accelerating growth. So, you know, I could give you the, I could give you the usual story, which I think is really important that actually, you know, having diverse people around us is good for our perspectives, it's good for our life experience, it's good to be exposed to difference. And I think that really is true if you lean into it. But I think if you're somebody who tends to lean away from difference, it, to be somebody who thrives in the workplace of tomorrow, you're going to need to get a different attitude. And I think that attitude has to be realizing that if you talk to people who are like you about your ideas, then you're not going to grow as a person. You're not going to have the next big idea. You're not going to be somebody who can add the actual value that you could add if you got there and learned some other perspectives. And, you know, I do this with my own students and I talk to them about, you know, your career. If you go and get career, a career advice, write down the three people who you would be most likely to ask for career advice today. Kind of a, a blank slate. Write down their ages, write down their gender, write down their race and write down their social class and write down the country that they come from and the university that they've gone to. And then I'll say to them, let's create a home affiliate index. So how much are those people like you? And then if it comes back, which it usually does, and it's pretty close to one for at least 50% in the room, I say to them, the best favor that you can do is go and get people who are different to you and get their advice because you don't have to listen to it. And I think this is really important. Or we look for other perspectives. You don't necessarily always have to go with a different perspective. That's not what I advocate for. But I think when you have an idea in your mind, as human beings, we succumb to confirmation bias. We seek out information that just feeds us back what we already think that we know. And if that's the habit that you've got into, the best way to move yourself forward is to seek disconfirming evidence. And the best place that you'll get that is from diversity. That was Professor Grace Lorden, who specializes in behavioral science. We wanted to take this topic to the students of Civica member universities, the students who have worked on different issues of diversity. We sat down with Eric Mokoya, a PhD researcher at the Stockholm School of Economics. Eric has worked on the issues of race in Stockholm. We also have Chloe Bertan, a master's student at Science Po. Chloe is on the management team of Pink Dynasty, a leadership program for marginalized young women in London. And finally, Giorgio Musto, a student at Bocconi University. Giorgio is the president of Bocconi Eco Students. His organization works to bring awareness about LGBTQ plus 
and disability issues in the university campus. Let's hear what they have to say about it. We thought about choosing this topic diversity because it's one of the most tossed around topic these days in the last couple of cent- decades, basically. And I think we, we chose this topic because we didn't understand what it means to be, what diversity means fundamentally. It means different things for different people. So I thought, you know what, let's make an episode about this. Let's talk about this and let's understand from the different perspective. Uh, Chloe, you want to go next? Yeah, I mean, gen- generally what uh, diversity means for you through the lens of your work you have done so far. Maybe okay. it could be help- helpful to understand that. Perfect. Okay, so what does it mean uh, to be diverse or to live in a diverse society? Um, I would say it means living in a society in which there is a constellation of people from different cultures, uh, with different skin tones, means, gender, sexual orientation, and different abilities. Um, It means also living in a society where you can be yourself. Uh, you are accepted for who you are, and you can have multiple identities. So in that sense, if I say that I'm a woman, a person of color or mixed, mixed race, and that I'm French, Ghanaian, and a bit South African, that I'm accepted in that society to have that identity, if that makes sense. Hmm. It it does. Uh, Eric, do you want to uh, go next and build upon that yeah i think uh good chloe said is uh, something i agree with also like it's uh it's about also like people being who they really want to be and they like exploiting their uh what could you say like their skills without being discriminated against like given the opportunity like affording opportunity to everyone and not like being judged because you're this or that i think so it's it's important, I think, to respect each other and to at least treat each other uh, well, no matter the differences that we have. Jojo, you want to go next and like help us understand? Yeah. So um, as for what diversity uh, means to me, I agree with what uh, Chloe and Eric uh, said. Um, one thing I also like think is that uh, for a diverse society to exist, uh, people also need to be uh, actively trying to uh, understand and know um, other cultures, communities, um, and to try to start a debate with other people to get to know each other, exchange ideas, of course, based on uh, being respectful of different identities. Yeah, I think uh, all three, uh, three of you have mentioned what it means to be broadly diverse as a society. Like uh, respect is important to each other, understanding each other uh, is important. But there is also a different kind of uh, diversity is different when it comes to different people. So we, we are talking about generally broadly about being diverse in, as a society. Jojo, can you talk about your work a little bit and how do you see what does diversity mean for uh, queer people, LGBTQ people, how how do you see diversity from a perspective of LGBTQ community? Yeah, so, okay, one thing that um, really strikes me uh, when uh, I think about the LGBTQ plus community and I uh, talk to people in the community is like, is, is the fact that it's a community that is not only diverse um, with respect to normal, like standard society, if I can use this term, but it's also so diverse within. Um, I mean, it 
um, members of the LGBT community uh, share the experience of being uh, discriminated against often, of being a marginalized group. But at the same time, uh, often they don't have so much in common. So they also have to struggle within the community to be respectful of each other and to accept each other. And uh, the crazy thing sometimes is that this is not always the case. And so um, it can get hard to, you know, uh, try to fight for uh, one's own rights if there is disagreement even within the community. Uh, but at the same time, it's such a huge source of enrichment and of beauty because it, it really like represents, I think, the diversity at its finest. Chloe, uh, I want to ask you questions. What Georgiou said. How do you how do you relate your work to that kind of diversity? Do you do you identify your work and your understanding of diversity related to women and uh, racial diversity around that? Do you want to add something to that? Sure, um, I agree with what what Georgiou said. I I do think obviously a big part is um, being accepted and included and not being discriminated against. In my case, for um, I guess my name, my color of skin, or my gender. Um, but what I would like to add is is obviously um, being included in the sense of having our, for example, history acknowledged within European history, if that makes sense. Um, and being also included, uh, but not for the sake of being included, but because we are competent, uh, and not because we are a business case, for example, uh, which is said by a lot of companies who want to increase diversity and inclusion, um, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, this is one of the things things I want to discuss. Now, diversity has become a point of point of marketing, marketing, like a lot of businesses use this word of it. it look, it, when you say that I have, we, we come from a diverse uh, company, a society, a university, it becomes a point of selling. Uh, it might look, but there are a lot of issues when it when you have when you when different people, whether it's uh, from different background come together. There are issues. Eric, do you want to uh, tell from your own experiences what kind of uh, experience you had when you uh, when you try to assimilate in the society of Sweden? Uh, yes, I think I want to pick up from where Claire left. I mean, in terms of. Uh there being conversations about this, uh, this is very timely in terms of uh, people wanting to have discussions about bringing people to the table. And I think it's very important. And, and I think what Chloe said also like about just people being brought to the table, not just because we want people on the table, but because so they are competent. We acknowledge that they're competent and we want to bring them on board. And we only want to bring them on board because we know they're not represented at this table. So I think that's very important. And also like, Something also important is also like uh, there's a CEO quote I read the other day, like truthfully, if these concerns had been brought up earlier, we could have dealt with them sooner. So I think that creating the awareness about it, I think that's key right now. My experience so far has been, I would say, positive to say the least. Um, I haven't felt like direct discrimination, but I, I feel like... Uh, opportunities, um, at least for many immigrants, are not being afforded at the same rate as they are to the uh, rest of, the, especially the non-immigrant society. So I'd say when I came to the Stockholm School of Economics, I was very hopeful. Like uh, the first week, I mean, with the introduction week, you're told like, okay, apply to all these big uh, 
like investment banks. So you come in supercharged, ready to send out 100 applications plus at a very high rate, you're working on them. But then soon, I think the despair comes in when you see the rate of uh, uh, rejection at the first instance of application. Not, not like, you're not even, you don't even get past the, the door, so to speak, the first door. I think that's where the disappointment comes in. Like, okay, is it because of my name or because of uh, perhaps the place I come from or something like that? And I think, so now looking at a couple of studies which I've looked at, one that was done in the US and one that was done in Sweden, where they just change the names and then they send in the same CV to the same job application. The rates of uh, acceptance for a, for, a, uh, for a white person in, in the American study, I guess a black person, is around 50% higher. And I think that's, uh, for a black person has to extend 15 for every uh, 10 that a white person does to get the same, uh, the call rate, to get the fast call. So I think that when you multiply it by 10 times, that's a, that's a lot more CVs that you have to send. I think that awareness that there is a challenge that needs to be there. The Swedish case, I saw it was involved an Arabic name and a, a white name. They just change the names and just send the same CV to the same jobs. And the call rate is still, I think in the Swedish case was around 30% higher for the white person. So I think those kind of statistics are the ones that then wake you up to the reality. Like we are not on the same uh, uh, platform. We are, we say we are, but we are not. And we need to pay attention to the kind of these two equally qualified persons, why can they be afforded the same opportunity? So that's my case, I think. Chloe, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in there. Um, I, I agree totally. And I think that's that's what really bothers me with this parlance of a diversity inclusion, because it's, I mean, I'm, I am for representation because I think it's very important to have representation, but we really need real representation in the sense that the problem with um, saying that we're going to increase quotas or add, uh, you know, do a drive to add women of color in the company is great, but it will not necessarily translate into um, a change in culture if the same power structures are still in place. And so I think that it's really important to, to have these discussions and also to push companies and organizations in general, governments as well, to change these power structures, because I think that's the main issue. Do you think diversity comes naturally to us? So I do think that uh, it unfortunately does not come naturally <laughs> because we are born in the culture that our parents provide us and education that our parents provide us. And so I think in that sense, Education has a big responsibility, and it doesn't only have to rest on parents, but also the state should provide an education that promotes diversity and inclusion and tolerance and love and understanding of the other, um, and also include representation of different peoples. We, we said that education is important and that knowing uh, what we're uh, dealing with is, is also helpful in like face, fighting discrimination. And I just wanted to say that like representation is key in all what we said. I mean, like it's only recent that like representation in the, in the media of people of color, brown people, black people, um, queer people is finally uh, starting to take place and to take place the right way, or at least a debate has started. And I think the gains of these are huge because even those who, 
who cannot uh, receive like the education that would be ideal or um, who, I don't know, live in places where they can't uh, experience diversity necessarily. Um, through the media, this, this is possible. It has to be done the right way uh, because there are huge issues. Uh, we could spend hours talking about that, I think. But still, it, it's a powerful tool. As we saw from the student discussion, the concept of diversity varies based on the topic you are dealing with. That is why it becomes hard to bind diversity as a concept on its own. The nuances of different issues also make it hard to implement. To wrap up this topic, I had a conversation with Maxim Forrest, a senior researcher and lecturer at Sciences Po Paris. He is also principal evaluator of Supera project. Supera project works to advance gender equality in the academic settings in Europe. Let's see what he has to say about his experience of working on the ground. In society, the new, new ideas are not very accepted very easily. The, one of the challenges is to make them understand what gender is in, in, in new terms. So how do you, say, how do, you do that, this in, in terms of work? How do you uh, change this perception? How do you introduce these new ideas into people's uh, minds? You know, it's, it's a bit broader question, to be honest, because it's, uh, there is a specific approach that has been developed over the past decades uh, in, uh, in Europe to approach these issues, and which is quite structured now. Um, and that, uh, so it's not my own personal experience. It's the experience of like dozens and, and hundreds of people who are dealing with gender equality and gender diversity in the academia now in Europe. So the collective experience we, we have, uh, first of all, is that to address something which is so deeply seated, uh, seated and so deeply entrenched in the work of our societies and organizations, that we have to adopt an holistic view to it. So definitely it's, not, it's never a woman-only question. It's a question for both sexes and it's a question for all genders. Um, so what we usually do is that uh, we build a strategy for instance, in form of a gender equality plan or gender plus equality plan, uh, where we review uh, through an audit, for instance, uh, that is better to do in a participatory way so that people get involved very early in the process uh, of all the biases that may exist uh, in different realms, uh, students, uh, 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 academic staff, teaching, attribu uh, um, attribution and uh, distribution of resources, of assets, of money within the organization, um, um, salaries and so on and so on, uh, work-life balance, uh, um, exposure to uh, sexual violence or, uh, uh, or sexual harassment or gender-based violence. So reviewing all of that and from that, starting from this departure point, uh, design, co-design collectively with all groups within the organization, a comprehensive strategy to tackle all these problems at once because they are related to each other. So here I give you two types of answer. First, do it in a participatory way. Involve people in uh, assessing the problem. And second, in co-designing solutions. That's the first point. And the second point is don't uh, go for one or other bias for one or other inequality within the organization. Try to have a comprehensive overview of what is going on around gender diversity and to fix all the issues at once because they are very much related to each other. I will divert a little bit here and I'll ask about the work uh, 
one of the organizations you worked with do. Uh, please correct me if I'm uh, pronouncing it wrong. Supera. Uh, Supera is a, is a youth-funded project, and I'm currently involved in uh, half a dozen of similar projects. It tries to tackle the bias of uh, related to gender, especially in technology. So if you see like artificial intelligence, machine learning, which is coming up right now, which is which is going to affect our lives for next centuries. If if you feed in uh, uh, our perception in, in these platforms, uh, just based on some uh, male dominated or one particular Western mindset, then this this uh, this softwares will uh, like enhance the whole bias how do you how, how do you like eliminate such bias this is happening because lack of diversity from the people in tech tech what do you think about this how do we eliminate such diversity it's 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 a uh, it's uh, yeah it's a good question and good introduction to the broader uh, issue of um, gender biases and diversity biases in uh, knowledge production uh, in general uh, artificial intelligence to my view is neither particularly artificial because ultimately algorithms are built by uh, by human beings and mostly by men, as you said. Um, nor it is particularly intelligent, uh, maybe in relation to the first part of the answer. Uh, that is, uh, it is uh, uh, it be, it vehicles a lot. It conveys a lot of promises uh, in terms of shaping our futures. But what we see is that algorithms are heavily biased not only on the basis of gender, but also of other personal uh, uh, and collective circumstances and, and, uh, and streams of inequality because of the structure of the population that design uh, those uh, uh, algorithms that are the basis of artificial intelligence. So what we face is a situation in which uh, we systematize uh, informatically uh, our biases. So we potentially make them even stronger even more dominant, even more omnipotent, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and ultimately even possibly totalitarian because we, we, we hardly challenge them. So that's really an issue. That's really a challenge we have. And yes, to answer directly your question, it's related to the lack of diversity in information sciences. Information, you know, any science comes from somewhere. It was institutionalized at a certain, certain period of time through certain institutions, academies of sciences, research institute, whatever. You take whatever academic discipline, the same happened. It could happen three, three centuries ago or as for information sciences uh, that are the basis for artificial inter- intelligence. Uh, uh, it could happen uh, 70 years ago during World War II in a military environment where those sciences were built, which was not especially gender or diversity friendly, right? So we have to challenge that and we have to make scientists, academic, uh, but also students think uh, about the condition of production of knowledge. And this is what a project like Supera, funded by the European Union and other dozens and dozens of projects at the national or EU level are trying to do to challenge the condition of production of knowledge and teaching, emphasizing that there is no neutrality there, no full objectivity, but certain conditions that leads to produce certain type of hypotheses, methodologies, and algorithms. So like uh, in the whole conversation, we discussed uh, two challenges here. One, it, one which, we, which you just answered, one is 
bringing people together uh, in a participatory manner and making them understand what gender means or what sexuality means sexual orientation means what different cultural differences mean different religion means that's one one problem we have uh, and second problem is we feed in our biases into technology and that has potential to enhance the whole bias and effect on the and it might affect the f- future so we uh, universities and alliances like civica has a particular role in in such such uh to solve this problem this is not just a tech problem this is a public policy problem this is a social science problem how do universities come together to talk to tackle this problem and what is the role of civica specifically in such challenges okay i start with universities before going to uh, and research organization before going to civica specifically um I mean, I was telling that the academia is a specific environment for discussion and uh, there is a specific role of universities since the Middle Age, since the first were like established uh, to uh, shape the condition for public debate and, uh, and for the advancement of knowledge and for the good of the society. So there is this basic mission statement that we all share. Uh, some uh, universities share it since, yeah, <laughs> the 12th or 13th century. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and this is the basis for uh, um, the, the framework for engaging with those issues. Then, uh, within the European Union and the European research area at large, which that goes beyond the European Union, uh, there is a poli- uh, policy that has been started like two decades ago, 20 years ago, uh, back in 1999, that first addressed the imbalances between men and women in research career. So it was a really narrow understanding of gender equality issues and gender diversity issues. But after about a decade, uh, it moves towards a much more inclusive one uh, because the European law changed to embrace uh, a a number of discrimination grounds, uh, including disabilities, age, uh, uh, ethnicity, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, sexual orientation. But also because uh, the first experiment of gender diversity policies in the universities revealed that uh, um, it was much more structural that we thought and that we needed uh, to, uh, to engage with how our institutions actually work and how they produce knowledge and transmit it to students. And that it was far more a question, that it was not only a question of counting men and women in a room, that was far more complicated than that and far more important than that. So there is a second generation of policies that translated in a number of projects and initiatives, a lot of them funded by the European Commission, and that created a large community of practice among universities and research institutions across the European Union to engage with those issues in the holistic, comprehensive, and structured manner I mentioned earlier in this podcast. Um, And uh, that's where we stand. We learned a lot. There are a number of tools, uh, of platforms, of communities, of practitioners, of training instruments, which are shared by this community of universities and research organizations. And here come Civica and the other European-wide universities established recently. Um, I believe that there should start very much from here, from uh, the cumulative knowledge and experience built over the past 10 years, because there is a lot to learn from. 
This is what we did uh, at Sciences Po. We, are, we were first involved back in 2014 in a first EU-funded project called IGERA, Effective Gender Equality in Research and the Academia. We implemented from there our first gender equality plan. We learned a lot about resistances, about methods, of particip about participation and the value of addressing other aspects of diversity as well. And from there, we engage in two more projects, Supera and the new one that will start along with Supera at the beginning of next year called Reset, each time with about six, eight universities across Europe. And this time in position of evaluators to help others to move faster than we did and to understand things faster than we did ourselves. So I believe that Civica come here and that's why Sciences Po is especially committed and interested in promoting gender and other streams of diversity in the very foundational values of Civica. Why? Not only because we stand here and we have this cumulative experience, but also because this is a EU-wide university. This is a European university, the, one of the first of its kind, and it should reflect uh, the foundational and the fundamental values uh, of the European Union, so diversity as it's uh, standing in, in the motto of the EU, but also gender equality, which is one of the uh, fun, um, fundamental values promoted in the EU treaties since 1957 uh, and even more since uh, Amsterdam and Lisbon treaties. So we have a specific responsibility as a new organization, but we have also a specific um, asset uh, in uh, starting from this considerable amount of knowledge and practices that have been experimented uh, over the last 10 years. So I think we should move, be able to move forward faster. Being a European university, you cannot, you cannot allow, you cannot, um, yeah, allow yourself, uh, indulge yourself uh, the time that, in, that universities uh, established centuries ago have taken in order to address diversity issues. You can't. We have to, we have to start from where we stand right now and we have to uh, make it even better. That was Maxim Forrest, a senior lecturer from Sciences Po Paris. He talks about the practical ways to implement diversity and inclusion. With rapid movement and hyperconnectivity among people across the world, how we deal with diverse aspects of our society is going to shape our coming times. I hope talking to these experts and students has given insights into nuances of these terms. We hoped to scratch the surface of these vast topics and to progress the dialogue around them. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Over to Europe is produced by Nicholas Fellows and me, Aniket Narawad, with the help of Savika Community. Music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is funded by German Academic Exchange Service. Subscribe and learn more at www.civica.eu/slash over to Europe. Stay tuned for our next episodes.